In a world where the rules of business have been written by men, how do women entrepreneurs who want to make millions of dollars and impact millions of lives create enormous success on their own terms? We asked this question to Eleanor Beaton. Eleanor has made it her mission to double the number of women entrepreneurs who generate over a million in sales by 2030. How does she plan to do this? Through female-focused entrepreneurship education. Eleanor firmly believes that economically empowered women entrepreneurs are key in driving gender equity globally. Eleanor is also the host and creator of a top-ranked podcast, Power Presence Position, which features interview strategies and advice to help new and emerging female leaders step into their own power, smash the glass ceiling, and take their seats at the table. Eleanor, thank you for joining us today. Yes. So I run a company called Safi Media. Safi actually stands for Self-Actualized Female Innovators. <laughs> I coined the term to really denote this growing group of women who are very influential, educated, highly educated, either in formally or through the School of Hard Knocks. And what I see is just this incredible potential that we have as a collective to advocate and make change. In my company, Safi Media, our mission is very clear. We are a media and education company for women entrepreneurs. And our vision and mission is to double the number of women entrepreneurs who generate over $1 million in annual revenues per year by 2030. And we aim to do that through coaching programs, through education, through media reports, research. We really see that women entrepreneurs and empowering women entrepreneurs economically is so key in advancing gender equity globally and worldwide. So I have a podcast. We have re-release reports and white papers. We run coaching programs. And the coaching programs, we really focus on women who run service-based businesses and consulting-based businesses, because these are largely, you know, when we look at the numbers of women moving into business, these are the types of businesses that they are running. And I have long felt that this category of business is misunderstood. It is understudied. It is certainly underfunded. And because, you know, written off very much as a lifestyle business. And so my work is really dedicated to understanding, exploring, coaching, accelerating, telling the stories of women who run those types of businesses. And what prompts these women to move into these types of businesses? What are you seeing in terms of entrepreneurship? What drives women to entrepreneurship? Freedom. <laughs> freedom. You know, there's different reasons that people start businesses. And there's a lot of research, actually increasing amounts of research out there about what motivates the decision to launch a company. And so in some cases, it's because the entrepreneur sees a gap and decides to fill that gap. So for example, I can remember, you know, prior to doing this work, prior to being a consultant, back in my early, early career, I was a journalist and I focused on high growth companies. And I can remember an example would be a group of women who all had little, little kids who are in nursery school, um, had to label everything. And so finding like decent, fun, easy to use labels was they couldn't find them anywhere. So they saw an opportunity. They started a company called Mabel's Labels. That company grew. They won, you know, RBC Women of Influence Award, so on. That's a business of, that's an opportunity-based business. 
there are more women actually who start businesses that would be called necessity-based businesses, especially as we were talking about in the green room, racialized women who may say to themselves, look, I am tired of trying to fit in in a culture that doesn't value me and a place where I don't feel like this is my jam anymore. I need to leave. Or where I've been actually disrespected or experienced a ton of bias, I'm going to go and do my own thing. And then more so other women who are like, I just don't like it here. (laughs) I don't like the business world. I can't make my life work the way that I want it to work. I'm going to take my skill set and start my own company. So I think these are some of the reasons that we see. And then in terms of um, the ability to thrive, do you see a difference in terms of racialized women entrepreneurs versus those that aren't racialized? The ability to thrive. I mean, I think that I see racialized women thriving in business and I see racialized women having challenges in business. I know that, you know, from the research, one of the things that I think is, is really clear is that we haven't we don't have a lot of data on women of color and their experiences running businesses. So anything that I would share has been anecdotal. And so I have seen bought from and my supply chain continue to support women like me who are running successful businesses, who enjoy the process, and also women you know, who have not had, who have really struggled to generate the kind of revenue, to see the kind of results that they'd like to. What prompted you, you know, you said you started off as a journalist. Where did you see the opportunity and, or what brought you to this opportunity? What in your life brought you here? Oh, I, a couple of things. So I had this skill set. So I, my dad was a prof. My mom was a teacher when we moved. So she was from the Fiji islands. We moved to Canada when I was four and the culture was so different that my mom decided she was going to leave her career and raise us. It just, she just couldn't get her head wrapped around in that point, putting us in a nursery school or in a daycare. The culture was just so different. So, you know, I grew up in a home where my parents had a great relationship, but my mom was completely economically dependent on my father. And this was fine until it wasn't. You know, and I can remember being a teenager. My mom is driving me to basketball. She's very annoyed because my mom and my dad have just had a disagreement about the household budget, about how to spend, how to spend or invest money. And my mom said to me, Eleanor, money is power. Make sure that you are independent, that you always make your own money. And so this was, I took this very seriously. And as a younger woman, I can remember thinking about how do I want my life to be? And how do, how do I want to accomplish this independence? And I thought about, did I want to have kids? Did I not want to have kids? And how could I create a professional life where I got to call the shots? Right. And so I don't know if this is the advice I would give to everybody. I, you know, I was definitely planning really early for all of this, but I saw that having a business would give me the freedom that I was looking for. I also really felt my, you know, my husband comes from a farming family. There are a lot of entrepreneurs in his family. And we got married young. I was 23. And he said, Why don't you try running a business? And so I thought about it and I was looking at, you know, I can remember I was getting paid $40,000 a year as a reporter at the CBC. And I was like, I think I could make more than this. I think I could do better than this, you know, with my own company. I think I could use these skills. These are valuable skills. I want to give it a shot. 
And so I had no reservations. I just started. And at the time actually had a lot of support and encouragement from an organization called the Black Business Initiative, which existed really to support men and women of color who were starting businesses in this province and have never looked back. What kind of support? It's interesting that you mentioned this organization because there's such value in creating organizations that are supporting communities or individuals that have been historically marginalized. And you now have maybe heard of the Black Opportunity Fund that's yes. been put in place. Yeah. So what what kind of support or value were you able to derive from these organizations? Because I'm seeing that they're instrumental in in moving advancing this. For me, first and foremost, I mean, there's the support at the macro level, you know, and we can talk about that in a moment. My experience was support at the micro level. And I'll give you some really clear examples that have actually shifted the trajectory of my company over the years. So I can remember I'm 23 when I started my first business, I was still completing a second degree. I did a bachelor of journalism at King's College in Halifax. And I decided I'm just going to go to these guys. I think I'm going to start a business. I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew enough to find the answers. I was being a typical journalist, like going and seeing who has the answers. So I can remember sprinting across the city of Halifax, sitting down at this meeting, completely out of breath. I say to Tracy, my account manager, I want to start a business. She's like, great. Do you have a business plan? I was like, what's that? And so first and foremost, it was a place that celebrated initiative. And where I felt safe, there was something about that organization, I felt incredibly safe to say, I don't know, to show up exactly as I was. And I think that that's thing number one, when you have organizations that are, that are focused on supporting racialized people, I think there's an understanding that if you are outside sort of the, the culture, (laughs) you know, or if you are outside the norm, it's important to provide a place where you're safe. The first thing they did, incidentally, was we talked about, they helped me understand, you know, you might want to get a business loan. And this was the furthest thing from my mind because I'm like, I'm just going to use my skills. I don't need a loan. They said, actually, you want to establish credit for your company, not only for yourself. This will help you as a business owner. And so the day I opened my business, I got a $5,000 loan. This is how old I am, which I used to get a fax machine and some business cards. But I established a credit history for my company. And what that did was introduce strong financial management practices from the very beginning. These are the kinds of things, right? It's not, they're like really supporting entrepreneurs to not just grow businesses, but to build wealth. I think that was something from this organization in particular that was so valuable to me. It's interesting how you, the specific support that you found through these organizations, because another aspect is mentorship we hear a lot about. I fail to still see mentorship that's really propelled or advanced racialized women in particular. And many racialized women have also said this to me, um, the connections are difficult to build organically. Uh, they, they take time and there's often that fit element that doesn't work out. Was there mentorship that helped you as well? And if there was, what aspects of that mentorship allowed you to move forward? This is interesting. One of the most powerful sponsors you know, in my life 
um, was a man who was the executive director of that organization for a long time, who cared deeply about, you know, the mission of that organization was to create a vibrant um, and dynamic Black presence in the business community. And so he took that really seriously. So this is a a powerhouse business guy, well-connected, well-liked, well-respected. And I have seen for so many emerging leaders and entrepreneurs, him doing what a classic sponsor does. Um, You had to earn it, you know? So you had to, if somebody's going to put their neck out for you, you really do need to deliver, (laughs) you know? Like if they make an introduction, follow up on the introduction. You know, if they've made a referral, do a good job because it's their reputation and your reputation. It was sponsorship that made the difference. Putting my name forward for opportunities, introducing me to, you know, so I had a communications consulting business in my first business. What they would do and he would do would be look at the larger companies that this organization was working with and make introductions to the CEOs and founders of those companies, you need to see this up and coming talent. You need to work this person, consider working this person into your supply chain. Sponsorship, sponsorship, sponsorship. We think about that a lot in sort of corporate, but that's really important for entrepreneurs too. I'll say that I found that the most helpful. I have definitely used mentors. Most of them I've hired because I, because it's a, it's an occupation and profession, you know, and I've always just found that I wanted to seek them out. They needed to have done what I wanted to do. And it had to be, to your point, it had to be legit, authentic. There had to be a connection there. I had to want to learn from them and they had to want to teach me. So most of my mentors have been in a sort of a paid mentorship relationship. And I really believe that so many women are starting service-based businesses. And we ask them, like, does pe- do people ask Apple to give them Apple watches? No. But a lot of times we will ask, you want to be a great human resources consultant? You know, we'll ask that human resources consultant to donate their time. There's something about the give back, but look, women of color in particular, I think are sometimes overburdened with this. And there's a lot of pressure placed on us to give back that other groups of people are not experiencing. I find that in some cases, mentorships can be patriarchal. A lot of corporations use them as a way to develop talent, but they end up being the junior employee having to figure out and learn how to fit in. And which isn't really what we want to encourage, particularly racialized communities. We want them to shine as they are and really use their uniqueness as a way to advance. And so for me, that concept of mentorship, uh, I struggle with. I have throughout my career because I've never really found one that really connects with me. And I've always just felt it was a conversation how I can fit into the organization. So true. And I will say, actually, I'm remembering, I did ask one time a woman, her name was Cynthia Dorrington, check her out. She was an African Nova Scotian woman. She ran a really successful HR consulting company and we were on a board together. And I just, there's just something about her that I always admired and respected. And I said, will you mentor me for like two months? <laughs> I didn't really know. And so we decided to do it for two months. And P.S., if you're doing this, please have a start date and an end date. Because I think that's another part of mentor relation. Like there's no out. And sometimes you want an out. You're like, this isn't working out. So I like to create sort of a commitment container. So we met three times. And she asked me this, she gave me this mentoring exercise, which was so powerful. She said, you know, 
why don't you, something came up about my grandmother and she said, why don't you kind of list your lineage, like the, the, the female lineage in your life, your mom, your grandmother, your great grandmother, as far as you can go back that, you know, something about them. And why don't you just write down everything you know about them and how that has shaped your worldview. And it was a really powerful exercise at that time in my life. I was in my early thirties to help as you're like, cause what we're really talking about here is how do we find a home? How do we create a space for ourselves in a business world that doesn't necessarily naturally do that? And that was such a powerful exercise. The one time I got a free mentor. (laughs) (laughs) What did you find from that exercise? Like what insights did that provide you? Oh my gosh. You know, I can remember it's been some time, you know, but I can remember a feeling of connectedness. And I was doing this at a time where I had young boys. I was running my consulting business. I was starting to have the experience that I think many women can have where I loved my business and I was fine. I loved the work that I did and the business that I did. And I was starting to find it hard to connect with people who weren't running businesses. I didn't kind of have the same, I was beginning to feel a little bit isolated in my work. And that experience, I felt very connected and I felt for the first time in a long time, especially because, you know, I grew up a biracial kid in Nova Scotia. I was the only person of color in my school. You know, Nova Scotia has a a historic black population who has been in this province for a long time. There've been historic challenges. And, you know, I can remember going through that exercise, feeling very connected to my lineage, feeling very proud, the sense of pride, just in thinking about those lives that helped me, I think, really sort of show up with greater self-acceptance. I've spent a lot of times in rooms where even to this day, I find myself sometimes in rooms where it takes a lot of, I, I speak, <laughs> you know, I'd say my piece because I have to, and I know I'm different and I feel it every time, even though I don't think that's, I don't believe there's any kind of intentional, anything that creates that, but I still feel it. And so having that anchor, knowing how important it is for me to always say something, because if I didn't, the woman at the, of color at the table was silent. I can, I'm never going to be her. I cannot, for the sake of all of us, I can't be that person. But as you say, it is exhausting. It can be very draining. I was recently in a meeting with a CFO and a chief risk officer and a chief legal officer. And I was the only woman and the only person of color. And there was no intention to for me to stand out. I was doing the presentation. And after I was exhausted because I was the only person like me. And it's, it's not, that was not the only time. It was the time that I was most aware of the energy it was taking me to yeah. be present in this room. And I think that awareness uh, is lacking. I think for even for me, it took me years to understand why my energy levels would 
deplete totally. so quickly in these yes. environments when I was the only person like me. And I haven't been able to explain it effectively to you know the CFO who would all be interested in, in listening to what I have to say, but to explain it so that they can really connect to why I feel the way I do. If I mention it to the CLO, CFO, chief risk officer, they'll listen respectfully, but they will never fully understand why it is exhausting to be the only woman of color in the room and yes because it really is training it really is and it's it's interesting agreed and it's not ever this sort of intentional thing well perhaps it is on occasion I don't know but I never have experienced it as anything that's intentional but you're right for years I felt that I felt just how exhausting it was and I thought that there was something wrong with me I thought it's because I'm not they don't have the skill yet it's because of this. It's because, no, it's, it was not because of any of those things. It was because it's the tax, you know, it's the difference tax that we pay. And I also think there's something that there is in, in tremendous pressure to conform. There's tremendous pressure to not make a fuss, to feel grateful. <laughs> you know, I think all of these weigh into the experience in that moment And it's just a complex thing that we're all navigating and walking through, I believe, in our own way. Have you experienced a type of any type of discrimination as a woman running your own business, Um, really having to put yourself out there? How has it been for you? Oh, that's such a great question. I don't think so. And it's interesting. Like, I don't think so. I don't think I've experienced it, but I'm not sure. And the reason that I say this is because I think if you're a person of color running a business and you're a person of color running an extraordinary business that you love, that's successful, that's producing results, and we all define success differently. For me, success is cash, influence, and autonomy. Is the business generating profits? Are we growing year after year and are we growing profitably? Is that profitability resulting in wealth for the shareholders? So that's one thing, right? So that's important. Influence. Are we able to advance our industry? Are we making a, a genuine and meaningful contribution to our industry and to the people that we serve? And do I have autonomy? Those three things are how I measure success. So I think when a person of color builds a successful business, given just the obstacles that are absolutely in place, first of all, good job. But I think that many of us, in order to do it, have this innate resilience, have this, you just can't get caught up in some of the BS. Like you have to, it'll, it'll take you down for sure. But what I will say is this, I have experienced people asking for, you know, organizations that shouldn't be asking for discounts from a business that's run by one of color asking for discounts. I have experienced people who are asking me to make exceptions and getting upset with policies that we may have in our business that they would never dream of complaining to Apple about, or they would never dream of complaining to their power bill about. So those kinds of things, I think, you know, is there a potential that as a female founder, as a woman of color, I'm experiencing the another side of you know, I'm experiencing sort of the, the sharp edge of other people's privilege, mm-hmm. possibly. 
In terms of this target that you have, which I think is incredible and ambitious, and I love how you put it out there right in the beginning that this is what I'm aiming to do. Where are you with that? So we, we're not sure. (laughs) (laughs) We need more. So what we, the way that we measure, so Ernst EY that's sort of a core benchmark that we look at because they do a lot of research with how women-owned businesses are doing globally. And so that's the benchmark that we are looking at. We're actually looking to try to move that 2% number. That is the most important number for us to increase that overall proportion. So that's what we're hoping. We'll see. I think that we need time. You know what I mean? I think we need a good solid 10 years. Let me give you an example of one of the things that we're doing that I think is so important. So, you know, when you think about the world of entrepreneurship, it's hard to underestimate the impact of Silicon Valley and the tech startup world on the larger conversations about what business success looks like. And so in that context, the focus is on high growth businesses that need venture capital in order to scale, that promise big exits for the owners and big exits for the investors who put their money in those companies. So to that extent, to that end, when you talk about a unicorn business, you know, so a company that has a billion dollar valuation, everybody knows what that is. Where most women-owned businesses operate is in what Silicon Valley and sort of the startup culture intelligentsia would call lifestyle business. And lifestyle business is an insult. Like that's, it's, it's not, it's, it is used intentionally and unintentionally as a derogatory term. So one of the problems is who are we as a category? What are we doing? Governments, banks say, we're not investing in you guys because you don't have any assets. Meanwhile, they will take a falling down barn as an asset that a farmer could borrow against as one example, but we have businesses that don't have assets. So banks are behind the times. Governments still don't understudy and don't fully understand these types of businesses. So one of the core ways that I saw is we need to define and articulate and explain what these companies are doing and who we are, what we're doing. And so What we have been talking about increasingly is this idea of a jewel business. So we have unicorns, we have star businesses. So a star business is the number one player in its niche in an overall market that's growing 20 to 30% a year. So that's the type of business you want to invest in. What type of business, how do we talk about these businesses that women are building? So we're not just writing them off as lifestyle businesses. So we talk about the concept of a jewel business. So a jewel business is a company that is growing at 30% a year, that has 30% profits and 30% open time for the founder. In our categories of businesses, this is eminently doable. And if you think about a woman entrepreneur who's doing like 100 grand a year right now, if she follows this and she pursues and she aspires to jewel business status, what that means is at the end of 10 years, she's running a million dollar business She's paying herself a salary of around six figures. And she has about, even in the most conservative estimates, she's banked about 1.4 million in profits. We need to, names are important. Yeah. They confer meaning. (laughs) So that where we are right now in terms of our work is number one, identifying like 
identifying how can we keep track of the number so we know the number that we need to reach how can we ensure that the that the organizations who are keeping count continue keeping count but also how can we clearly articulate and bring respect for you support women entrepreneurs you need to respect us the world is changing quicker than ever before we don't know for certainty what will happen over the next few months or the next few years but we will continue to adapt and share stories of strength so that we come out on the other side as a more inclusive, kinder, and understanding society. Thank you for listening. I'm Shilpa, and you've been listening to Her Climb. Did you enjoy the show? Then subscribe to Her Climb Podcast so you don't miss an episode. Her Climb Podcasts come out every week in our very first season. Thank you.